Well, folks, um, we're going to talk about some pretty, uh, if not lighthearted stuff today, then some fantastical stuff today for the most part. But I do want to open up this episode by, you know, noting, and I would be remiss to not acknowledge the ongoing war against the Palestinian people, especially in Gaza, really the ongoing genocide of the Palestinian people that is being carried out by the Israeli state at the behest of the U.S. government using U.S. government technology, U.S. government hardware, U.S. government intelligence, and U.S. government diplomatic cover. Um, Right now, they are cracking down on the Palestinian people who absolutely have the right to resist, will continue to resist, and will one day be free because that's their land. They deserve to have that. Uh, I know if you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't need to be convinced of that. But, um, you know, if the off chance that you're not educated on this issue, it's important that you get educated. And no matter what, it is important that you get in the streets, you get involved, you get active on this. Most of our listeners, not all, but most are Americans. And so I would just like to let you know tomorrow, um, this is coming out on Friday, the 3rd, tomorrow, if you're listening to a day of the 4th, there is going to be a massive demonstration for Palestine in Freedom Plaza. That's in Washington, D.C., in front of the White House. Um, It is going to be, we don't know the exact numbers yet, but it is going to be the largest demonstration in U.S. history for Palestine um, and We need as many people there as possible. So please, if you're anywhere in the area, get there. If you're not in the area, that's okay. Find a demonstration in your region. If there's not a demonstration in your region, there probably is. But if there's not, make one. Talk to your coworkers. Talk to your family. Educate people and yourself about this. We have to keep this going. There is going to be on-the-ground sustained momentum on this. We cannot let up. As we are We are in the belly of the beast, we are in the core of imperialism. We have the responsibility to stand against it. Now, this march that's happening on the 4th is uh, being sponsored by a lot of organizations. The organization we both work with, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, is playing a major organizing role. There's Palestinian Youth Movement and a variety, Answer Coalition, and a variety of other really principled, fantastic organizations. So get plugged in with one of these organizations and, you know, make your mark on history right now. We cannot stand silent while this genocide is being carried out. As the Ballad of Black Tom, the book we're going to talk about, aptly points out, Often the horrors inflicted by man, the like racist, imperialist, um, you know, genocidal horrors inflicted by humanity, by the capitalist structures on people are more horrifying than any monster that could be dreamed up by, um, you know, by just a fantasy writer. And uh, it is our responsibility to stand against these monsters. Don't let the Palestinian people be another person or another group that gets land acknowledgements. Don't in a hundred years, let's all say, well, why did no one do anything? We have to do something now. So um, I uh, apologize for a really bleak opening here, but I think it needs to be said. Joss, do you have anything to add or should we cut to the music? Well, you know, Vonnegut said that, you know, all the anti-war demonstrations in American history amounted to basically a custard pie dropped off a six-foot ladder or whatever he said. And respectfully, Mr. Vonnegut did not grow up in a reality where you could see a genocide happening live. And Mm -hmm. you can see this happening live. You know, the plight of the Palestinians is worldwide like never before. The state of Israel's propaganda is being debunked in real time as fast as they can rush out their vile, vile blood libel. And it's there is going to be a qualitative change. You know, the scales are falling from people's eyes as never before, certainly in my lifetime. And, you know, I saw I saw a tweet uh, just today that, uh, you know, um, as that happens, you know, 
as Palestinians fight as Palestinians fight for their freedom, you know, they may very well end up uh, freeing us in the process. Welcome once again to the socialist shelf. Now, I will preface this uh, with a quick dedication. My sister, if you're listening, um, thank you once again for the two books, uh, one of which uh, we will be talking about today that were on my mind just this past week. Um, one of which was The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow by Kids Johnson. The other one is today's offering The Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval. Yes, Lovecraft is on our minds once again in all his contradictions, in all his good, in all his bad, his very, very bad. Um, and again, as Jacob pointed out earlier on, you know, anti-colonialism, decolonization, liberation is on our minds at this moment. And liberation, you know, the point at which fighting for your life becomes fighting back is i think very very definitely uh very definitely dealt with in this in this volume jacob what do you think i think um you know victor laval says it as well as any of us could say it uh going into this episode which is um in much the same way as we said in our uh, lovecraft episode he dedicated this book to lovecraft quote with all my conflicted feelings um and in the same way that we have, you know, there are massively conflicted feelings about Lovecraft, as you said. And um, but this book, I think, um, in a really interesting way, I say book more of a novella, not too long, but um, it this story synthesizes Lovecraft in a very interesting way. And it synthesizes a lot of the horror dealt with by the most marginalized in our society. And it takes the sort of um, lens of horror that Lovecraft uses typically to not have a broader point not to say that lovecraft doesn't often make broader points about society through his horror such as the horror of red hook which he like certainly does but often lovecraft's point is just wow wouldn't it be fucked up if x like that is just kind of a thing he likes to do um not that he's not coming with his own presuppositions but victor laval is able to sort of harness that lovecraftian um that lovecraftian energy and point it in a direction that speaks to you know societal horrors that refocuses it and that um gives it more humanity than lovecraft is usually able to accomplish in his works and certainly more than lovecraft accomplishes in the horror at red hook which we should probably open up by talking about because the ballad of black tom is a retelling of lovecraft's short story the horror at red hook which was written in 1925 over a period of two days in early august yeah it shows yeah it's look you you heard us um well maybe you didn't but if you did we talked about Lovecraft uh, extensively on our episode about the Mountains of Madness. Uh, we praised that book for the most part. Um, we we you know had a lot of criticism of Lovecraft for obvious reasons. Uh, we will not rehash all of that in this episode because we don't want to be redundant. But we'll I'll just kind of lay out our line on him. He's an interesting guy, an interesting product of like the time of like the insecurities of modernity rushing in, and this guy who is like comes from this family that is well off but has lost their money and he feels uh alienated and isolated and he turns to reaction and racism to uh 
to cope with that and it's you know inexcusable the way he behaves even and not not just like inexcusable in the way that the era was broadly racist inexcusable as in racist for the era like he does not get a pass he gets no passes i have a book lying around of his letters to a contemporary and um, not protege but like like the next generation like uh cl moore like Mm -hmm. the letters that he wrote to her like there are there is there is um a sense a sort of uh, i don't want to say rumor but um many people say that oh well you know he moderated uh, toward the end of his life and i want to be clear not by a whole hell of a lot even yeah. into 1936 the year before he died like he was writing back and forth with his content with his contemporaries about like you know skull shapes and shit it is honestly right. jaw-dropping the shit that right. this guy was up to and like um but despite all that you know there is a lot to be said for his work it is incredibly clever it is incredibly like his we we and we talk about it but his word choice is is remarkable what the words he chooses the level of precision he has the way he's able to convey concepts broadly without specificity and make you feel the missing places the way he is able to you know people say jazz is about the uh, notes you don't play and a lot of things lovecraft is about the horrors you don't show he is able to introduce that and a lot of authors have done really interesting things with what we call lovecraftian um you know mythos and he has introduced a lot of really interesting things into the world and he introduced a lot of really interesting concepts of this like cosmic horror um which is why a lot of his books are still like pretty good and interesting the horror red hook is not particularly good and it's not particularly interesting even lovecraft himself was like okay um yeah this one wasn't that good i actually just kind of banged this one out he himself admitted that in his lifetime yeah Um, i mean credit where it's due you know lovecraft knew when he i mean you know he was unwarrantedly self-critical at certain points, but he certainly knew that he was not capable of producing something truly great if he didn't really enjoy it, if it didn't really speak to him. And this did not really speak to him. He was writing horror at Red Hook at a time when he was trying to break into more conventional pulp magazines outside of his usual like Weird Tales cosmic horror niche, and then Weird Tales was the only uh, magazine that picked up this story. So, you know... He's like, okay, yeah, I hacked this one out and it shows. Yeah, and essentially the overall plot is there is a police officer, a detective named Detective Malone, who is describing his time during an incident at Red Hook, Brooklyn. Red Hook being a sort of uh, community, largely immigrant community within New York City, within Brooklyn, um, and that he is now recovering from it, and he had a terrible, horrible time. He backtracks to where it began, and it's basically his story of dealing with this strange case of this guy named Robert... How do you say his last name? It's S-U-Y-D-A-M. It's a Dutch name. Is it Sudam? Sudam? I think it's Sidem. Sidem. We'll say Sidem. And if we're wrong, um, you know, uh, I don't think listeners can take us to task. That's exactly right. Um, Robert Sidem is this, you know, rich guy, but a sort of declining rich noble family who takes up the dark arts, gets very interested in them. Um, Thomas Malone, the cop who is also just something of a mystic. um, He actually lovecraft ascribes his mysticism to him being a a celtic guy um being from dublin because lovecraft is that specifically racist Um, oh yes i and and, well and and this is this is really an interesting sort of turning point in 
Lovecraft's work and also in American history, right? Because right. you get you get the point where Irishmen there's still very much prejudice against Irishmen. You know, there are still like, you know, there are I mean, still he makes an Irish guy a policeman in this. It's a stereotype well, exactly, right, right off the bat. You know, at a point where there are still restrictive covenants, like, oh, you know, like no no Irishmen or black men like need, you know, rent from here or like uh, seek employment here, you know. There is this incorporation into whiteness of this particular population that is that that there is still you know institutional prejudice against. Mm-hmm. And and essentially, Robert Sodom uh, uh, is this. I describe him as a poor old rich guy. Basically, he's like half insane. His family tries to take his money, which is why the, the detective Malone is put on the case. They're not able to prove that he's insane. He ends up starting to get like all kinds of arcane abilities and stuff. He's getting, you know, more well off. He's getting younger looking and he's keeping a lot of what Lovecraft describes as foul company, like immigrants, you know, like Arab immigrants and, and that sort of thing. Uh, Lovecraft is very racist about all this. There's all kinds of there is an immigration conspiracy, a supposed kidnapping of blue eyed Norwegian children that it talks about. And then um Basically, when the detective Malone tries to investigate and tries to intervene, you know, Robert has you know, died and he goes underneath this this horrifying apartment building that Robert has bought out in Red Hook in this neighborhood and sees all the horrors of hell and sees, you know, uh, babies getting eaten and dancing dudes and all kinds of scary shit. And then he's like, oh, my God, this is terrifying. And then he, like, gets out and it collapses and the end is he's like, no one believes me, but I'm like so scared. If, um, that's kind of what happens. If Next Door was a short story, it would be the horror at Red Hook, you know, yeah. and it's and, and this this comparison comes to my mind because at the time of writing this Lovecraft was a living in Red Hook and B, you know, deep in poverty. Right. So he had that resentment that he turned outward at, you know, the people around him. Um, and it's before a lot of his stronger work and indeed it's not really connected to it except in very like you got to squint to see certain um to see certain commonalities it's not one of his mythos works they are not worshiping thulu um at least not in the horror red hook they are in battle by tom um but no it's just your bog standard um oh like uh scary immigrants doing devil worship stuff yeah it's the sort it 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 antedates the sort of uh, satanic panic nonsense that you would have seen in the 1980s, which was less about the Satanism as than it was about um, uh, a reaction by right wingers, you know, the religious rights to this perception that they were losing cultural primacy. Yeah. And I have two like important quotes that I want to read from this story that I think kind of gives you the gist of it, because there are really two theses here. The first one is just the the plain kind of racist immigrant terror idea of a scare scary community of people who quote aren't supposed to be here end quote and he even refers to them as illegal immigrants and contrasts them to the good immigrants that came through Ellis Island and he was like they came the good way these guys came the bad way you know that the reactionaries don't come up with new stuff uh, um, they do the same thing which um, you know spoiler alert. Coming the good way means coming from Europe. Um, it meant, means it now and it meant it then. Um, that's that's what they mean when they say that. Um, but let me read a quote of describing the neighborhood um, and the area. Um, and I'll skip some bits here um, because it's a long passage, but I just want to read this bit. Quote, 
The population is a homeless tangle and enigma. Syrian, Spanish, Italian, and Negro elements impinging upon one another, and fragments of Scandinavian and American belts lying not far distant. It is a babble of sound and filth and sends out strange cries to answer the lapping of oily waves at its grimy piers and the monstrous organ litanies of the harbor whistles. Here long ago a brighter picture dwelt with clear-eyed mariners on the lower streets in homes of taste and substance from where, from where the larger houses line the hill. From this tangle of material and spiritual poop, Putrescence, the blasphemies of a hundred dialects assail the sky. Hordes of prowlers reel, shouting and singing along the lanes and thoroughfares. Occasional furtive hands suddenly extinguish lights and pull down curtains and swarthy, sin-pitted faces disappear from windows when visitors pick their way through. Policemen despair of order or reform and seek rather to erect barriers protecting the outside world from the contagion, end quote. It's bad. It's really racist. Officer, my neighbors are playing their music too loud. Like, yeah, literally, it's like, it, it's like people are speaking different languages and they he turn looks, off their lights he says, sometimes. He says, just, just a little further on, visible offenses are as varied as the local dialects. Yeah. Super cool, Lovecraft. Um, oh. I mean, like, it's, you know, I don't have to... Um, this? I don't have to argue why that's racist. It's it's very racist on its face. And yeah. Lovecraft would tell you, "Oh yeah, I'm being racist here." He was not. He would not have. Uh, he was not hiding that. Oh yeah, yeah. No, and this is. I think this is in uh, direct contrast. And this is, of course, um, this is in direct contrast to some of the uh, the the descriptions of the city that we get in the Ballad of Black Tom. Um, do we want to start on start off with uh, Victor Laval right quick before we dive in? Well, actually, I have one more quote I want to read. Yeah, um, uh-huh. really quick, because that that was the first point of the story that I think needs to be noted, and then there's a second point to the horror Red Hook that I think needs to be noted, and that is the concept of um, if smart people, in Lovecraft's view, white people, could synthesize the hidden religions of the what he considered primitive people they could come up with some horrifying stuff and the quote goes quote high intelligence jeers at the inmost mysteries for he argued if superior minds were ever placed in fullest contacts with the secrets preserved by ancient and lowly cults the resultant abnormalities would soon not only wreck the world but threaten the very integrity of the universe end quote so he's making the argument and this is recurring in some of his other stories including call of cthulhu that um basically like what he considers to be primitive people um, people who are studying like voodoo and and you know people who come from like African traditions and Middle Eastern traditions and all numbers of different stuff and and he kind of lumps it all in together because again he's racist. Um, they are onto something, but they don't understand it in full. And if scientifically minded people understood what they were talking and working with, then it could like bring about the world's end. You know, he does not make room for the idea that these people might understand the religions that they have like that the idea that they don't fully understand their own religions um he does not interrogate the fact that like why would the smart people not have figured out the true religions why like it's 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 a contradictory idea of like the um the quote unwashed masses wield both great power and are incredibly stupid like they're able to be all powerful and 
um, and ignorant at the same time because that's just how reactionaries think. That's that's the type of double think that is necessary to like maintain such racist ideology. But it is important to note that this that theory and the idea that a guy like Thomas, uh, I'm sorry, a guy like uh, Robert Sodom um, is able to harness the power he is is simply because he's a white guy uh harnessing these like other traditions powers so that's important to know going into the ballad of black tom and it's a contradiction that victor laval turns very neatly on its head over the course of the story yes yes and speaking of victor laval he is the author we're focusing on today not hp lovecraft uh lovecraft's got his episode and he may have more but that's but and but you know that context is important but victor laval is an american author born in 1972 in queens so he is from the new york area um his mother is from uganda ugandan immigrant and she was you know a single mother he said he had a very you know chaotic childhood growing up a lot of people coming in staying for a little while at his house not being there he said it was very loving but very chaotic is what he comes back to when he talks about his childhood he was a big reader he was a very curious child always trying to read you know um fiction and stuff and he said four foundational authors clive barker Stephen King, Shirley Jackson, and above them all, H.P. Lovecraft. He said it took him a while to admit to himself how bad Lovecraft's racism was because as a young, like a young guy, like as like when he first read Lovecraft, 10, 11, 12, he did not want to admit that Lovecraft was that kind of guy. He wanted to love and respect Lovecraft. And he said that he would return to his works later, 14, 15, 16 years old. And he was like, okay, I have to admit, this guy would not treat me with respect if he knew me. English was the thing he loved. Um, and so he went and studied English at Cornell University. Um, he had really bad mental health problems and um, physical problems in college. He gained a lot of weight. He had struggled with depression and anxiety. Um, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia runs in his family. He says he felt like he got some combination of that and was like, kind of afraid to ever be institutionalized and checked out to figure out what he does actually have. It caused him to drop out of Cornell. However, he eventually returned um managed to get his degree in english and then got a master's in creative writing at columbia university and now teaches at columbia university and has ever since teaches oh, writing. columbia university famous uh, alma mater at least briefly of jd salinger yep um in 1999 he published a short story collection called slap boxing with jesus 11 short stories of young black and latino boys uh very well received critically and shortly after this he lost a lot of weight um, he said not for himself, but for the um, like the picture on the cover jacket. He said he felt very vain about that. He did not want people to be like, oh, that's that fat author. His words, not mine. Um, and he said so he got vain and lost a lot of weight for vanity, um, not not for his own health. He says he doesn't particularly care much about that. that and is that some, is very funny. That is some motivated fucking vanity. I tell you what, I aspire Love to that it. level. In 2002, he wrote The Ecstatic about an obese, schizophrenic college dropout. Um, you know, so a lot of a lot of his own, you know, experience in there. Um, the family that tries to help the boy in that story is as messed up in the head as he is. It's all gallows humor kind of stuff. Uh, bit of a break. And then in 2009, he writes Big Machine, a book about a suicide cult. Um, so he's getting more into the stuff that will be Ballad of Black Tom. Um, and in 2012, in the same vein, he writes The Devil in Silver about a man 
who is completely sane, who gets mistakenly institutionalized at a mental hospital and basically finds out the place is haunted, but no one believes the patients because they're clinically insane. Um, and he's the only one who knows it's a real haunting because he has no problems. Um, though he does start to go insane by the way he is treated there. So there's like, you know, also social commentary. 2016, he writes Ballad of Black Tom, which has been his most successful work. Um, and we will be talking about today. Um, won all kinds of, you know, awards and stuff, you know, World Science Fiction Convention uh, Awards and uh, Shirley Jackson Award, Hugo Award, Nebula, Fantasy Bram Stoker Award. It did very well. Um, some of those were nominations, but he he did quite well. Um, I really like that he um, you know, has won and been nominated separate times for the Shirley Jackson Award as she's one of his like favorite authors. She was foundational for him, so that's super cool. Uh, he also wrote The Changeling, another novel, and the graphic novel Destroyer, um, about a descendant of Dr. Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Um he, uh, you know, in his continuing writing to today, he's got some other stuff as well. I believe he wrote a book called Up From Slavery. Um, there, there's a variety. He, he, oh, and he uh, helped work on A People's Future of the United States. Yes. Which yes, he collaborated with mm -hmm. Omar el mm -hmm. Um, which is interesting. Not directly, but they both have entries in A People's Future of the United States, which is pretty interesting. Um, so there's some, there's some tie in there. Um, again, Omar Elicott, Riverbed, the story that appears in that, that highly, highly recommend. Very good. Um, you can listen to our interview with Omar Elicott if you scroll up your feed. Um, <laughs> because, you know, we're name droppers at heart. Um, um, yeah. Um, well, quite a Robert, few... Robert Sidem is also a name dropper, so that can lead you to some uh, to some uh, pretty, uh, pretty powerful circles. Yeah, just don't drop the name in the wrong context, but you know, won all kinds of stuff. He's in the Guggenheim Fellowship, um, which he shares with the author of uh, Gideon the Ninth. Tamsin Muir. Yes. Fine Arts Work Center Fiction Fellow, Breadloaf Writings Fellow. He's, you know, United States Artist Ford Fellowship. He's He's done quite well for himself, and he's uh, you know contributed to all number of publications and different stuff. Some great interviews. He's an interesting guy. He's not a uh, super public guy. Like, there's not a ton on him. Um, and he's also a guy that like he's not very old. You know, he's uh, he's 51. It strikes me that you know his like what it might be considered his greatest works very well may be ahead of him. Um, you know, because he is picking up with every work he's done he has had like more critical and and commercial success so you know uh an artist to watch there even though he's been in the business for a few decades now mm -hmm. so cool guy um and um a guy who is very interested in things like concepts of mental health but how they intersect with um you know society itself how mental health and um you know perceived insanity and and the idea of being an outcast how all of those things that like work very well with lovecraft intersect with like actual social things that lovecraft was never tangling with and so he took the horror red hook and wrote the ballad of black tom which um you know absolute blast of a novella well and really there's good. an over and there's an overlap i'm glad you bring up um mental health right because because the idea the concept of masking 
right? Yeah. Is shot through this entire book, um, specifically from the racial perspective. You know, I mean, from our protagonist, uh, Charles Thomas Tester, Tommy Tester, is very, very conscious of how he has to present as a black man in even a city as diverse as New York. Yeah. Right. You know, it's uh it's always gotta be yes, sir, I play guitar, no, sir, I got a couple more stops on the train still, you know. Yeah, having a destination, he has to cite answering yes. questions, that kind Const- of thing. Constantly deferential as as unremarkable as invisible as compliant as possible in order to um in, in order to avoid arousing the suspicion and indeed the wrath of white America. This is something that's constantly, constantly weighing on him. And indeed, it's for for as um, for as terrifying existentially as that is, you still see from the beginning a certain beauty that Lovecraft is completely blind to. I'll mm-hmm. read from page 13 here. Uh, let's see. Nope. Nope. I'm sorry. Page 11. Uh, in the clothes he'd picked, um, I should say, Charles Thomas Tester. Tommy Tester is a musician. He plays guitar. He sings. Well, a few songs. he's not a particularly good musician. Yeah, notably. no. He 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 he. You know, picks on the guitar. He sings a few songs badly, but he hustles and he makes enough money to support himself and his father. Yeah. Uh, in the clothes he'd picked, he sure looked the part of the dazzling down and out musician. He was a man who drew notice and enjoyed it. He walked to the train station as if he were on his way to play a rent party alongside Willie the Lion Smith, and Tommy had played with Willie's band once. After a single song, Willie threw Tommy out. And yet Tommy toted that guitar case like the businessmen proudly carrying their briefcases off to work now. The streets of Harlem had gone haywire in 1924, with blacks arriving from the South and the West Indies. A crowded part of the city found itself with more folks to accommodate. Tommy Tester enjoyed all this just fine. Walking through Harlem first thing in the morning was like being a single drop of blood inside an enormous body that was waking up. Brick and mortar, elevated train tracks, and miles of underground pipe this city lived day and night it thrived there is a vitality here that sets itself very very starkly against lovecraft's rot and decay yeah. you know cuz all all the beauty that lovecraft alludes to is in the past right in you know you skipped over this in um in your first extract from red hook you know but he says oh yeah you know the architecture like it used to be pretty and the sounds used to be great uh, you know and then all the scary foreigners moved in you know no even with all the uh, all the terror that he has to navigate, there is beauty in this city. You know, there are rent parties. You know, there are times where people can come together, help each other get through the day, and just forget about their troubles, even if, you know, for only a moment. And even in the hustle and bustle of it all, like, he feels like he's a red, he's red blood pumping through it. Yes. You know, it describes itself in a very specific way. I feel like Lovecraft describing the same situation, it would have been like, I was a bug on a microscope in a society. And, and he's like, no, I'm blood pumping through the arteries of this city, like a city that he does want to be a part of, a society that does reject him. But he is, like, very willing and happy as a guy just to, to be, you know, someone who's a part of. He wishes he could be even more integrated into society, as we'll get into. Also, I would be remiss to not mention, because it just came across my um, my screen, that apparently Victor Laval has a, uh, a TV show on Apple TV starring Lakeith Stanfield coming out soon. So uh, shout okay. out to him for that. Lakeith Stanfield of Sorry to Bother You, Atlanta, Get Out fame. So pretty cool. Um, I believe he also played L in the American Death Note. Maybe I have not seen that. Um, 
look uh, notably, uh, I would love a. I think a film adaptation of Ballad of Black Tom could be pretty dope. Um, there was um, there was an adaptation in the works. Um, uh, was there? Well, it was one of those many, many things that was announced pre-COVID. So who the fuck knows at this stage? Right, right. And I mean, we could have a whole conversation about the difficulty of Lovecraft style adaptations to film, but that's not what this is about. This is about the Ballad of Black Tom. Um, yeah. So our main character. Our main character, Charles Thomas Tester, like you were saying, he goes by Tommy Tester, and he is, I mean, he kind of, I think, oversells to himself what, like, a hustler he is. He's like, I'm hustling people. I'm making them think that I'm a jazz man, when in reality, I'm, well, he's still a jazz man. He's still playing music. He's still, like, he's just not, like, particularly good at it. Mm-hmm. It is a, it's a, it's a funny hustle, because it's like, um, he's not... I mean, like, and he's clearly, like, it doesn't go into it. He's clearly, like, involved in some other stuff. Like, at the beginning of the novel, um, he's he's bringing a book that's, like, clearly, like, sort of sub-legal across the city and stuff. So he's, he's like, kind of got his fingers in different, like, different things. But the reason, notably, that he is not directly involved in, like, working just a, quote-unquote, honest trade like his father had is his father makes the point his father otis who lives with him um his father is a widower by the way he looks and moves like an old man but his father's only 41 years old because he's been broken down by the by construction his father worked in cement um and it said you know it says uh you know again and again very like clearly that like despite that his his father is like yeah i could get you a job working where I used to work. And he's like, dad, you got paid less than the white laborers. You weren't allowed to be part of a union. So if the, your boss just took your money or mistreated you, there was nothing that could be done. Um, if work didn't get done, you were made to stay late to do it. They broke you down. And on the day that you couldn't come to work, they replaced you and never thought about you again. He says, I can't do that. I will not do that to myself. He's, um, you know, Tommy is 20 years old. He's, you know, vital. It's in the prime of his life. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to hustle first. Yeah, of course, of course. Like if you're looking at that calculation, you're looking at your father broken down, um, old man at 41. Um, it's like, and and you have any opportunity to escape that. And like, naturally you're going to do that. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's interesting, and and he kind of views his father as a saint, um, which like he he views his father as this like perfect example of like what a man should be, and in an ideal world, everyone would be his father. And his father does it now and again, kind of throw um, some like wrenches into that, like where his father mentions, "Oh yeah, no, I used to carry around this like straight razor all the time, and I had to use it sometimes to you know defend myself, especially when I was going through like Alabama and Georgia and stuff." So he's able oh, to be yeah. like, "Oh, my father did have a history. My father did, you know." do what I had to do, um, had to hustle to get where he was today. So he does have that tradition. His father is like a full person, but at the end of the day, his father is like an ideal member of that society. And what happens to him? He gets broken down and, you know, spoiler alert, gets fucking murked by the police, not even by the police, by private police. And then like that are like deputized to kill by the NYPD um, in his own damn home. It is funny to me that not that obviously, but it's funny to me that the private police detective in this story is named Howard. Mm. You know, as in, I mean, H.P. Lovecraft, right? Howard right. Phillips Lovecraft. Of course, um, it's not supposed to be a direct allusion to Howard, to the the person himself. You know, Lovecraft is mentioned in the story as a character. Blink and you'll miss him. Um, Wait, okay. But- I blinked and I missed him, so you'll have to. Oh, yeah. So it's there. It's very late in the book, right? But after the whole... Um, of course, this story takes place concurrently with the horror Red Hook, right? Yes. Chronolo- 
chronologically, um, the horror at Red Hook begins somewhere halfway through the Ballad of Black Tom. And after all those, um, after all the events of that story end, there is mention of the fallout, of the cleanup of the neighborhood, and it mentions that there's a guy who um, is very, very persistent about, like, um, knowing what happened, and, like, he was living here with his wife, and then eventually he moved back to Providence for his health. Oh, yeah, I do remember that. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, that's, that's him. But I do think there is something to the fact that the private detective is named Howard, because it's, I mean, it's it's that shadow, right? It's that shadow of whiteness that is over, you know, not only you as a black man um, in this in this world, but also, you know, Lovecraft himself over his um over his mythos because as enduring as his mythos is by the nature of how he made it you know you still have to grapple with what spawned it yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. um so like the very beginning of the book is um is you know tommy tester taking this um book this like magic book basically to a woman named ma at is that how you would say it to ma at ma at yeah yeah it's 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 a basically a anglicization like bastardization of as we find out an egyptian word an egyptian concept ma'at yes um all of our egyptian listeners you know like if i butchered that sorry uh yes. all of our ancient egyptian listeners you know ma'at is... of which there are many hopefully oh, yes. but um yes, and, on... and interestingly enough it's a book that contains um it, it, it's a book that contains like an ancient alphabet and if i'm correct it's the supreme alphabet of the five percent nation actually yes. Um, which, uh, I'm not like super educated on, but my understanding is the 5% nation, um, also refers itself to as to the nation of gods and earths. Mm-hmm. It's like a black nationalist, like Islam influence movement. Um, yeah, sort of but, like a nation of Islam, like adjacent just in terms yeah, of uh... more mystic. It's like yes. kind of more mystic adjacent. It talks about like basically their idea is 10% of the earth are elites, 85% of the earth are sheep and 5% of the earth are struggling against the 10% to bring the 85% into the light it's like yes. the here, the, well, the well, alphabet and, comes from the like five percent nation well, and and you're very i think you're very correct in pointing out this thing that um that we recognize from the beginning you know that um that uh tommy recognizes from the beginning that you know the uh the only the that ma'at does or doesn't necessarily like so i mean first off right the issue with horror at red hook one of the many issues with horror at red hook as we alluded to is that well it takes a it takes a wealthy eccentric dutchman right to parse through all this um all this you know stuff from like the dark corners of the earth and whatnot um but here in the supreme alphabet along comes something that it transpires is known and is understood to tommy and to his father right yeah something that they can something that they can uh, peer into that ultimately robert sidem misses yes um but yeah notably the the five percent nation though of course it does not play like a super big role in this aside from their supreme alphabet which notably right. the supreme alphabet is what you know yeah they they know about the others miss but it is a alphabet of, that contains um just 10 it's i think it's 10 like 10 symbols and that I wrote them down. They represent knowledge, wisdom, understanding, culture slash freedom, power slash refinement, equality, God, build slash destroy, birth, and then just zero, which is the cipher, um, yes. the symbol. Um, and there's a lot more like 
stuff that comes with that and probably like a lot of things that I've missed because I don't know a lot about that history. But it is interesting that that is like the power that uh, at first, um, you know, um, Tom is Tommy's like carrying around um, and he kind of knows what it is, but he's like not fooling with it because he's smart enough not to. And eventually this will be the power that he's able to harness. Um, He's kind of like, it's not my business at first. It's fine. And and, and indeed, right. It's, it transpires that he delivers this book of some sorcerous power that he knows not to mess with, right? He delivers it to Ma'at, and it's not whole, right? Yeah. The last page, the last page has been removed, um, not by him, by his father. His father, it transpires, is illiterate, mm-hmm. which is in, which is interesting to me, you know. Which is how he's able to yes. remove the page without being affected, which is interesting. I mean, I, I love that, you know, like it's 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 a it's a common joke. It's a common trope in Lovecraft, you know, like as long as you're illiterate, you're fine. As long as you don't read the books, you're fine. You know, if you've read Knights of the Dinner Table or any other any other, uh, you know, um, comedy like dealing with uh, Lovecraft and Cthulhu, like yeah. illiteracy is the cheat code. here. Yeah, Snow, like it's kind of similar to like Snow Crash. If you're not a programmer, you can't read the ones and zeros. Snow Crash isn't going to do shit to you because I you mean, can't. Yeah, you're not absor- absorbing the bitmap. I mean, but, Lovecraft um, himself said, you know, the most merciful thing in the world is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. Yeah. So basically, Tommy then shortly later comes across Robert Sodom. Um, and Robert's like, you, you know, you should play at my party, um, you know, jazz man. And he's like, sure thing. And he's like, I'll pay you a lot of money to do it. Um, and, you know, sure enough, as soon as Robert leaves, uh, two detectives, one being Malone, the main character of the original story, the horror Red Hook. And, um, um, and then the, the, that other guy, Howard, the private detective come along, they rough him up. They take his money. They treat him poorly. They threaten him. They're just generally racist towards him. They're like, you better not come back here. But he's like, this guy is offering me so much money. I'm going to have to come back here. Um, But it also introduces, you know, Malone in a different way. Because in um, Horror Red Hook, Malone is very much this guy who's like, I'm kind of a thoughtful police officer, you know, whatever. And like, indeed, he's not the guy who is the main brute in the interaction between the officers and uh tommy but nevertheless he's standing there he's allowing it to happen he's reinforcing it he's like maybe playing the good cop slightly compared to this like private deputy but like nevertheless he is like part of the system and it doesn't matter if he sees himself as the good cop or if he has like sensibilities or indeed if he's like at home taking his little notes and doing his little doodles and he has an interior life when he puts on the badge and he spends time in the streets he is reinforcing the system that is crushing you know everyone around him yes yes and it's it's a more thorough and interesting interrogation of because you know lovecraft has that contradiction in his original story you know that Malone used to be a poet, right? So he was kind of too sensitive for the cop job. He was too like, yeah. He 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 had this sort of um, incisiveness about him, this um, this inquisitiveness that cops don't necessarily possess, right? Right. Um, and what Laval is doing here is taking that a step farther, right? He's saying, look, you know, there's as an Irishman against whom institutional prejudice does still exist. You know, Malone has been on Tommy's side of this before in a way, like not mm-hmm. as severely, but in a different way. Malone knows when Tommy is hustling, right? Malone knows when Tommy is code switching and trying to hide something, you know? But, you know, Tommy sees this, right? I'll, I'll read from the last bit of chapter two here. Uh, Malone walked off and Tommy Tester remained there feeling exposed, seen, 
in a way he'd never experienced because Malone, Malone just asked him, okay, look, what's the real story? You can be straight with me, right? Uh, you're a cop, Tommy called. Can't you protect me? Malone looked back once more. Guns and badges don't scare everyone. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, yeah, that's the thing. If you're, there's different laws for different classes of people. And if you're from an underclass and you put on a cop's uniform, well, it's not really about the uniform. The uniform is just there to scare people. You know, once you're marginalized and yet on the inside of that power structure, you're exposed to a deeper level of brutality than the mere aesthetic will let on. And I'll note later in the novella, when Tommy has people around him who are support, like a, like an institution, I mean, it's like an organized crime kind of thing, but he has guys with him. He now has power. He now has whatever. He says, and he gets threatened by Malone. He says, guns and badges don't scare everyone. I love you know? that. <laughs> he's, he's just like, you know, like now I've, now I've got mine, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, before, before we yeah, no, go ahead. Further, like, Ma'at, what did he think of her? Like, because initially... Um, Nothing at the beginning, and then a little later, she is like implied to be a sorceress of some kind, possibly yeah. having a gigantic tail. Um, it was it was interesting because like she she asks Tommy about like because Tommy hangs out in uh, the Victoria Club, right, yeah. which is specifically for like um, people from the West Indies hang out there a lot, and yeah. like Maat has a question about it, like oh you know like there's all kinds of uh, there's all kinds of like um ruffians there like crazy shit goes down there it's a you know hive of scum and villainy tell me more about that so in my mind i'm like oh is she some kind of poser who like genuinely doesn't know what she stumbled across but i mean she does she is aware of the sorceress potential of the book which is why she cottons onto it immediately that you know the last page is missing right and she um you know later on malone talks to her and he's able to like sort of you know he rolls like perception and is able to send something that the dumb cop isn't um mm-hmm. and that she's got like some power behind her and he's like does she have a giant tail or whatever it doesn't reveal it's actually a moment that feels very lovecrafty in and like oh, something yeah. lovecraft would write mm-hmm. um especially the not really revealing it she has some kind of magic something going on it's not important to the plot but it is interesting and it makes the world feel lived in as in there are these characters who are walking around with this like dark knowledge mm-hmm. um and um they're holding it and they're interacting and they're bouncing and uh she kind of exists to be like they're like hey there's this magician now look what um tommy can do now that he has some of his power but we'll get to that um oh, yes. she kind of is like the villain who's introduced to introduce the more powerful villain who like just smacks the villain from season one down night i mean I, i'm not to say tommy's necessarily a villain but it's like that kind of energy like kind of like for that kind of dynamic it's yeah it's like my my favorite example this show is ass but um season three of arrow Rachel Ghoul showing up and dropping the season one villain and of um, Merlin in two hits. Like it's mm. it's kind of it's kind of sick. Like <laughs> I don't know why I thought of Arrow right now. Season three but... of Ruby, where like you know, like 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 Ruby reveals that she has the silver eyes and blows Cinder away, and Cinder's last mm-hmm. words are like, "What?" Yeah, it's sick. Um, but nevertheless, um, Tommy goes home. He spends some time with his father. They go to that club that we were referring to. Um, not a whole lot necessarily happens there except for that conversation we mentioned where he realizes his father is a little bit more of a complicated man than he knows. He mm-hmm. gives him that straight razor, and he's like, carry this with you. He's like, you're going to that white man's house. You're going to his fancy party. You want to have this this razor with you. I really want to – I would love to just to sit down with Victor Laval and discuss how he, is, how he puts this together because there's a lot of specificity yeah. in what uh, what Otis is saying here. Like, 
Nebraska. I avoided yeah. crossing Arkansas, Otis continued. Whether you were Negro, white, or a red man, they were pretty rough on hoboing in Arkansas. They had chain gangs, you know. Like, that's, mm, that's, the, that's, I mean, it's terrifying corners of history that they're very easy to sort of, you know, walk past if you, you know, don't grow up in that, in, in that history. Okay, so Tommy eventually, oh, and, and lastly, Tommy interacts with his friend who's not particularly important, but it's notable Buckeye Buckeye is this guy who like works at the club and his he's from Montserrat I believe is that yeah. is that right um, Montserrat. and he worked on the Panama Canal and he's like mm-hmm. yeah when I worked on the Panama Canal there were like dudes there who were like talking about Cthulhu it's <laughs> um, like that's like kind of a notable thing is like that there's like these like stories that are going around in these cultures these people that are like being really exploited for their labor actually do know like the dark secrets that are like lying beneath the earth i wish um, i wish people talked about that shit at my job yeah much more interesting um and then like you know what did you do this weekend he's like yeah what did you do this weekend and the dark king will soon awaken oh yeah like you know i i like oh i had a dream about you know like the fucking sleeping king like you know drowning the world you know and, mm-hmm. and so uh, notably every single time i read sleeping king i read stephen king and this <laughs> every single because it's sk and they're both capital it just every single time i read it's just like my brain does that i don't know why but Steve anyway King just like just like wakes up and like uh yeah and he's just there yeah exactly <laughs> so when stephen king awakens you watch out so tommy goes to sodom's house i cannot say that name for the life of me Sodom. am i saying that right sidem Sidem, Sidem. It's, like, it's like the 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 like sexy shark from fucking Zelda, but with an M instead of an N. So true. Sidon, um, Sidon's house. He goes there. He gets I racially it work. Yeah, he gets <laughs> true. Um, he gets racially profiled on the like on the train going there. Gets harassed. Sidon's house seemed scary at first, but then he gets like um, Tommy gets chased into there by these like this racist gang of youths, basically. Um. They're like they're like fifteen too, which is like you know, I mean you know maybe they're like a really tall, maybe they like filled out pretty early, right? Yeah, and there's for, like for several like of them, and also like, but that's also thing, like worth noting. If Tommy fights back, then he's the one who's going to get in trouble. Yes, yes, you know, and and that's the thing. Like you can totally see how that existential fear could could you know children can punch well above their weight if they are situated in that hierarchy you know yeah and like three 15 year olds and then you're not allowed to punch them they could do real damage <laughs> to you um but in Sidem's house which is this broken down ass you know old manor um very you know very much like a great horror set and the only place in the house that's not broken down is this over-the-top lavish library that's full of arcane knowledge um and Sidem speaks about you know at length gives the speech that he's going to give tomorrow at the party to Tommy. He's basically brought Tommy here early to like be his test audience. And he's like, we are going to interact with the sleeping King. And he's talking about Cthulhu here. They don't use the name Cthulhu until later in the book, but if you've seen um, Lovecraft country, like the first episode of this, like really, really evokes this pretty well. Yeah. Um, and, and he, uh, and he's there, and he's, like, kind of trying to manipulate Tommy, because he clearly, Sidem thinks he's a lot smarter than Tommy. You know, he's like, look what they've done to your people. Don't you want to wash them away? And he's like, don't you want to destroy society? He goes, think about it. Think about how when when the sleeping king rises, when Stephen King rises, um, <laughs> all of um, – <laughs> All of society will be washed away except those who helped him wake, and then we will have the power. We will be whatever. And he's pitching that, and of course he has this moment where he goes, quote, 
um, you know, capital outside. Um, mm -hmm. And he's like looking out the window and it's a very, you know, traditional Lovecraftian horror moment of like seeing space and seeing the sea and seeing the fucked up architecture of the Cthulhu town. And, and he's like terrified to walk out the door. And even when he opens the door slightly, he sees the faith face of Malone and like through fucking space time. And it's like all over the place. and It messes with his brain. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And he's like, uh, and and Tommy's like, I'm not touching this with a ten foot pole, you know. I'm not messing with this. Um, he takes he takes his pay and he's like says, Oh yeah, I'll be back tomorrow. No intention to go back tomorrow. But when he gets back to Harlem, two things happen. The first is him having that money, he gets treated really, really well. He gets treated, he says, like a prince. When people see as that stack of money, he gets weighted on quickly. He's able to leave a huge tip, which mm -hmm. feels very good for him. And he's like, shoot, if I this is what if this is what Cthulhu will bring, then like I'm all down with that. And then the more notable and more important thing, he gets back to his apartment. Malone and uh, Howard, the two cops, are there, and they have going through his things, trying to like follow up a lead on him. Uh, ended up murdering his father, Otis. Yes. And they said, "I thought he had a rifle. His father was holding a guitar, and he shot him. I think eleven times or something. It was like absurd." Uh, it's and, and just they murdered just murdered him in cold just, blood. And, yeah, and they just tell it to and they just tell it to him straight, like totally it is wrenching yeah. reading this right it's horrifying it is... and it's out of nowhere too because he's feeling kind of nice coming back from the diner and then boom oh yeah. yeah like like and notably you know it's howard howard immediately he sees that this person whose father he has just murdered mm. is in shock unable to say anything and then he turns to malone and he's like see i told you you know these people these people don't have like familial connections like you and i understand he is in shock you motherfucker yeah. it's it's insane and then i i really want to read uh the quote from this part because it's very important tester is talking now to howard the cop who killed his father he says um how many times did you shoot my father tester asked i felt in danger for my life mr howard said i emptied my revolver then I reloaded it and did it again. Tester's tongue felt too large for his mouth, and for the first time he thought he might cry or cry out. He felt the weight of the stone in his coat pocket, heavier now, as if dragging him to the ground. His night with Robert Sidem returned to him, all of it all at once. The breathless terror with which the old man spoke of the sleeping king. A fear of cosmic indifference suddenly seemed comical or downright naive. Tester looked back to Malone and Mr. Howard. Beyond them, he saw the police forces at the barricades as they muscled the crowd of Negroes back. He saw the decaying facade of his tenement with new eyes. He saw the patrol cars parked in the middle of the road like three great black hounds waiting to pounce on all these gathered sheep. What was indifference compared to malice? Indifference would be such a relief, Tommy said. And I think if there's anything that like, you know, if there's any passage to take from this, it's 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 this. It's it's oh, Tommy yeah. being like, why should I be scared of fucking Cthulhu of this thing that is indifferent, this force of nature, when there is this active malice these people who are actively out to kill me and systemically empowered to do so yes. and they do not get to be indifferent like they do not get to have the excuse of i saw i um 
you know, I am just a different species or I see you like they are making the choice every day. They are suiting up and coming up to New York from Texas on a job in Mr. Howard's case. And, you know, not even being a police officer in the city, being deputized on a, you know, as a detect private detective and killing a guy holding a guitar and knowing what that means and understanding what that means. And being able to not just live with themselves, but to just throw it out casually to their the person's child and just, you know, be all, you know, fat and happy with it. The just, sheer it's unbelievable. impunity with which they take a life while Tommy has to avoid certain neighborhoods and, mm-hmm. avo- and, 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 and say yes, sir, and no, sir, you know, for fear of being, you know, beaten down by white children. You know, yes. it's it's. If you don't look at if you don't look at this and you're horrified, right? I don't know, you know. And and it's worth noting, you know, this story set in 1925, but this shit happens every day. Yes, and it has happened every day for one more than a hundred years now. Ahmad Arbery, you know, like yeah. you can be jogging through a uh, through a through a neighborhood, right? And, and so many names we don't know. Too, yeah, you know, so yeah. many names of and so many names of like, yeah, you know, how do you think the police did this one, right? Because like. It says later in the book um, that like he never got his father's body back because they like just oh did some I was clerical error. About that. I was thinking, it's it's like a, how it's... many people never get their bot the bodies back? There's a yeah. case right now that it just happened in I believe Alabama actually of like a woman who like lost her son and like months later found out he was had been in the police station morgue and they're like oh we don't know what happened to him or whatever oh, yeah. and yeah, she had to know, pay two hundred dollars to get her son's body that had been run over by a fucking cop and they hadn't even had the decency to tell her this yeah. happened in twenty twenty three and this shit is happening every day and it's been happening since then and it's been happening before then and it is scarier than fucking cthulhu <laughs> yeah standard standard fucking operating procedure of you know georgia bureau of investigation you know the whole the hold the body and hold the body and not let you mm. it is it is it is vile it is the you know and it's that kind of everyday i mean this book is my favorite use of you know there's that trope that uh you know white people don't know not to go in the haunted house right and this book really, really peels back the why of that, you know, because, you know, you haven't had to deal with an uncaring, all-encompassing force that is dangerous and even hostile, right, when it notices you, you know. Um, if you're Black and if you're Black working class in America, yeah, you have. Yeah, like, I, and- I, I, it reminds me of when um, Brianna Greer was murdered um, in in um, Sparta, Georgia. I was there a few days afterwards at a protest, a sort of impromptu protest, um, and one of the sheriffs pulled by, and the Sparta, Georgia Sheriff Department had killed three people in the past year, um, and you know, in a town of like. 1500 people too so think about that proportional to the population of the town how many people know someone killed by the police and somebody was saying like you know brianna greer she was called like they called 911 for like she was having a medical emergency and the sheriff just kind of said what did you think was going to happen when you called us and he drove away like just callously whatever like that's what happens that's what we do and this was in 2022 y'all this is not (laughs) um yeah anyway um and dark dark to, yeah god to, yeah to, yeah and you know to to drive the point home and to take it back to the text you know it's not you know tommy opens the door during this uh like ritual right that uh Sidem shows him at the party right yeah that um, happens shortly after this because he doesn't give a shit anymore yeah it's not it's not the sleeping king that tommy sees when he opens the door not as robert expects mm-hmm. it's malone that yeah. is the existential threat to tommy yeah 
Absolutely. Sundown Town still exists, y'all. Yeah. And notably, um, and, and, uh, and yeah, notably that scene, and it happened shortly afterwards because he has no reason not to go back to the side of him. He's like, fuck it. And yeah, he has that experience. He opens that door um, mm-hmm. that's to the outside that's not supposed to be open. He steps through the door. And we don't know exactly what happens to Tommy in between um, that moment and when we see him again, but he becomes Black Tom. He becomes the lieutenant of Sidem. He becomes this incredibly powerful sort of sorcerer slash mafia boss. Um, and he's basically able to have a moment where he reckons with that horror mm-hmm. um, and is able to then these deeper secrets of Cthulhu and all that. He's able to like harness that power. He's able to have it. He's able to understand it. He's able to work with it. The existential dread that's like being experienced by other people in that movement, like Sidem, who is always speaking with great fear and trembling of Cthulhu. You don't see any of that out of Tommy. He is not afraid of that. He has already seen shit way scarier than he can ever conceive. Um and 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 is able to harness it. But at that point in the novel, it switches perspectives to Malone, the yes. protagonist of Horror at Red Hook. And I yes, wrote this down is, this is where chronologically horror at Red Hook begins. And I wrote and it's talking about how he's like, yeah, I'm walking the streets and I'm, you know, taking in the sights and I'm having these like sort of supernatural visions. And I was like, holy shit, Disco Elysium. Um, you know, it's it's a, it's a yeah, Harry Dubois. Um, no, um, very different. But there is like if you play Disco Elysium, um, the perspective of um, Malone is very similar to the Shivers mechanic and disco elysium if you put points into shivers and you have sort of experiences with the sort of supernatural and things touching the supernatural and they don't usually help you very much they just kind Mm -hmm. of give you this like vague experience um that's kind of what malone's experiencing and he's like obsessed with that and he like sees himself as not like the other cops because he's more um he understands these other people more partially because of his like irish background partially because he's like a tender soul or whatever malone's Um, not like other girls yeah, and and even notably for a while, the people in like his beat actually treat him more like okay, yeah, we're not gonna like be weird because this guy's not weird with us. Now, mm-hmm. the second that he like kind of breaks that fragile truce with them, they they break they break it back. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, he um, I, I thought it was a notable detail that the people actually did give him like a modicum of respect for his respect towards them, and 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 that it was reciprocated. And he was like, "What the hell, guys? I thought we were friends." And it was like, you know, but he's uh. And so it gives this interesting perspective. And like, I want to note again that like, while he is this kind of sensitive guy, he's also wearing the gun and the badge. And as you know, this book is very well aware um, that makes him the, the symbol of the state in a way that, you know, can't be escaped. And he, he is as, re- and he is responsible for, he has this blood on his hands, uh, whether he feels it as acute, he maybe feels it more acutely than say uh, Howard does or whatever. He maybe is a little more, uh, curious he is maybe a, sees these people as a little more human but um if he he sees these people as more human and he does the shit anyway then that doesn't make him a better person <laughs> he's wanna, actually overcoming his impulses more i want to draw attention to the pacing of the book as well now that yeah. we've entered now that we've entered the malone bit it's so it's not a very long book you know it's like no. 100 and, it's 121 like pages for me yeah yeah so but we have time over the first 10 chapters to sort of dwell in the city, right? To follow Tommy Tester throughout his day, right? And throughout his, you know, happiness, throughout his deep, deep sorrow. And then chapter 11, flip a couple pages, we're at the end. 
Chapter 12, flip one page, we're at the end. Chapter 13, it's, it's, it is bits and pieces, it is snatches of Malone's perspective that we are treated to fleeting glimpses of. You know, you get mm-hmm. the sense that things have sped up beyond his ability to fully perceive. Oh, yeah. And it's because, like, weird shit's going on. And, you know, he's now on the beat of trying to figure out, um, you know, about this immigration ring. This idea of, like, how are all these immigrants getting into the country? And so he's in the red, on the Red Hook beat. Red Hook being this immigrant neighborhood that Lovecraft described so grotesquely. Um, and, you know, Malone has, you know, the perspective Malone gives is a little more nuanced, but he's basically still seeing it as, you know, this, like, crime-ridden neighborhood or whatever. And um, Sidem basically has taken up residence in this neighborhood after making friends with a lot of people in the community he's bought up several apartment blocks and has kind of converted them into his base of operations he has a small army around him and his lieutenant is a guy named black tom who is of course tommy tester and he walks around with a bloody guitar and he's humming and he can like hum a note that will like fucking like will fuck you up (laughs) like he hums a note and it like drops people it's he does that thing really where cool. you know he he sings a show tune and then you know raises it like up or down a half step at the end yes exactly but in this case it uh it just it drops you i you dreamed know? a dream in time gone by yeah that kind of thing yeah that that's exactly what happens in this novel uh <laughs> imagine um yeah so um basically he has so malone you know encounters black tom in the streets and basically you know gets manhandled without even black tom throwing a punch without tommy throwing a punch and this is so cathartic this yeah because so it's it's a similar experience as what he had to go yes. through yes you know it's it's you know tommy can stand up to him now and fear absolutely nothing because he's mm-hmm. tapped into serious shit yeah and then um tommy rolls up to Ma'at's house where she has this like magic alphabet that he's going to need for his ritual and Mm -hmm. we don't know everything that goes on we just know he literally hums a note that rips her house like from this plane of reality um and leaving nothing but plumbing just takes the eraser tool and just like yeah and i actually love the description that it's doesn't take everything it rips everything but the plumbing and it's left like a skeleton of like like the veins of the house are left behind Mm -hmm. And so we know, we don't know much about her aside from she was like magic and now he's like really magic. You know, the thing we were talking about earlier of like the villain of season three defeating, dropping the villain of season one easily. It's that kind of thing. And so um, Malone gets freaked out and says, oh, well, we're going to have to launch this operation to take down, um, you know, Sidem and, 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 and Black Tom and their so, whole operation and makes up this whole thing about this ring of this again, prime ring. And again, there's there's this um, there's this moment here in chapter 15 where he's talking to the you know racist white lady who is um, who's like, yeah, you know, she I saw I saw a black man walk into that house and, you know, I I have kids. I wanted to be safe. And like it shows you just the power of like, you know, the crocodile tears of the white woman at this at this point in history. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, still today, like it's it's. Because she says at first, well, you know, like my like my girl started crying in the kitchen and I couldn't stop watching. I was so curious. And the lie by omission that she's telling is, oh, you know, my kid was so scared. And then right at the end of the chapter, she's like, oh, yeah, you know, my kid cried herself to sleep right there on the kitchen floor. She'd been trying to reach the jar of peppermints. Right. You right. Know? And 
it's it's the it's the sort of blank that gets filled in by an institutionally racist uh you know police force who's absolutely yeah you know who, who whose goal is to is to maintain the state of apartheid yes and so then we launch into basically the climax the nypd is out in full force a rumor has been spread we're not sure who by probably the nypd that some norwegian children have been kidnapped this is this is critical yes that is it yes that it and is that's a, notable because that's the thing like First of all, again, we have that thing of where, you know, there's a poem called uh, Providence in 2000 AD that I mentioned way back in the the Mountains of Madness episode, right? Where Lovecraft is like, yeah, you know, I'm racist against like a lot of people like uh, Scandinavians in particular, right? But in horror Red Hook, right, Lovecraft says, well, you know, like three, um, three Norwegian children went missing and like the, 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 the stout Vikings of, uh, of, uh, of Brooklyn were like getting together or whatever for an angry mob. So like, that's the point where a people that Lovecraft is nominally prejudiced against can get incorporated into whiteness to use against this other even lower people, right? And Lovecraft plays the disappearance of the children completely straight here. As you say, you know, there is a rumor that kids have gone missing. We don't, it's like that episode of Buffy, right? Where there's the demon that pretends to be the kids who were murdered and there's a big panic in town, but nobody even knows their names, just that there are children missing potentially. Mm -hmm. That's what this is. You know, it is the specter of, I mean, you know, it's, it's 40 beheaded babies, right? It's a specter. It's blood libel, you know, to, to get, to get white people's blood up. Yes, absolutely. And that's and it's sufficient because they're able to build an army of the NYPD. And notably, he's like, yeah, we always carry revolvers, but we got these things, too. And it's like fucking military grade rifles and and artillery and shit. Anti-aircraft guns. Yeah. Um, Which, like, you know, is 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 funny, but also like, you know, be part of a major protest movement and you'll see. Oh, no, they do have that shit. Um, They they rolled out the tanks in 2020 in Atlanta. I'll tell you that. but they roll it out in front of this apartment block and start going through um, apartment by apartment, getting ready to crack down. Um, and due to his, uh, you know, special, you know, um, special sight, his shivers, his, his, uh, you know, his disco, he's put those points into shivers and disco Elysium. Um, Malone is able to see a hidden door, this door that's like hidden through, uh, once again, past perception check. And um, the door is, uh, you know, there was like a magic that was hiding it, but he's able to see it. He goes down the stairs into this dark basement. Now, at this point in Horror of the Red Hook um, story, he like sees hell. Um, It's different in this. In this, he sees these in blood, basically, his old partner, Howard, the like really vicious kind of brute of a a private cop, Rena cop that murdered um, that murdered tommy's father his blood has been used to like make these like runes out of this like alphabet out of the five percent nations um supreme alphabet i'm sorry what were you saying it it is really just bothering me it's sticking in my mind right that again it's one of lovecraft's early er stories in terms of it because he did most of his best work in the last decade of his life um if you read horror at Red Hook, like he spends a couple of pages on this the specificity of, you know, there are these demons running about and they are saying, you know, these chants and like he goes like from beginning to end this ritual with the specificity that he refrains from in later stories. Yeah. You know, you know, to 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 his credit, like he does yeah, it gets better front. Yeah. You know, but yeah. it's it's the sort of thing like you're spell you're spelling it out and it's just rendered that much goofier right especially mm-hmm. apparently like the um 
there, there's this one like Latin chant apparently that he that he I mean, he wrote this thing in two days, right? And this one Latin chant that appears is I think um some invocation for like treasure hunting rather than yeah. like summoning demons. Yeah, um, it's it's notable. Like, there's a uh, joke my pastor used to tell uh, when I, you know, the church I went to as a kid, where he would say, you know, he'd be worked up, and he said, "God is all loving. God is all powerful. God is beautiful. God is compassionate. I wish I could describe him to you." And it's a pretty good joke. Um, you know, it's it's like it's true because he's indescribable, but it's a pretty good joke that you spend mm-hmm. uh, two paragraphs describing something and then saying, "I wish I could describe it." It's you know, credit where credit's due. It's a pretty decent gag. Um, and as, as well as making a point, though, it's still indescribable despite everything I said. You know, he wasn't just joking. But uh, in this case, yeah, Lovecraft had not quite learned that lesson yet. Of If you're mm-hmm. going to call something indescribable, don't spend so much time describing it. Yeah. Um, in this, though, it's it, it will come to find that that vision, that weak part of the Red Hook, is basically a, uh, a, a way that... Um, a way Malone has filled in his mind with what actually happened. He basically created a vision of hell to replace the actual experience of going down to this basement, seeing this like bloody alphabet and seeing um, Tommy and um, Sidem with, you know, the corpse of Howard and Sidem is like, you know, we're about to awaken. We're about to awaken the King or whatever, you know, it's, this is it. This is the moment. And then you've got Tom, uh, Tommy, who is, uh, you know, got his own ideas, and he's like, no, Sidem's not running this show either, and he cuts Sidem's throat. He drops him. Yes. Um, uh, after doing this kind of bit where he pretends to, like, mess up the ritual, even though he knows damn well what he's doing, mm-hmm. um, he he drops Sidem. He's like, no, you're not running the show, because Sidem, you know, earlier noted, like, he said, we'll rule the world, and I will be your gracious emperor. Like, Sidem still intends to be at the top of this order. Um, and you know, Tom even has this, Tommy has this like moment where he's like, what, well, what order would that be? You know, um, you know, he's still skeptical through his like rage. Um, and so now the power is in his hands, the power to summon Cthulhu. And you have this moment that's like really horrifying where he uses the magic and the power and is in, you're seeing the fucking lost city, uh, where Cthulhu sleeps and seeing the sleeping giant's head. Um, and you have this moment, um, and, and I'll uh, and I'll just describe it really quickly. Um, and this portal is open, and, and Malone is is like being held by by Tommy, and it says, "Quote: Black Tom grunted. Suddenly, he was doing something to Malone's face, but Malone couldn't understand what it could be. As Malone's hand rose, a new sensation crippled him. He'd been set on fire, so it felt a burning pain whose cause he couldn't locate. He only knew it was agony so bright the world seemed to flare around him. He howled as animals do, and the hand holding the pistol shot out against his will. The pistol fell from Malone's hand and flew through the portal into that distant sea. Malone screamed and screamed and let go of Black Tom's arm. He batted at his own face." as if he might swat away his torment. Black Tom grunted again, and Malone's eyes became wet. Something was being done to Malone's eyes. A tugging sensation, as if Malone's face was being yanked off. Black Tom held a straight razor in one hand, and it was slathered in blood. Black Tom had cut off Malone's eyelids. I Try to shut them now, Black Tom said. You can't choose blindness when it suits you. Not anymore. I fucking love that. That is metal as fuck. A. Yeah. And again, you know, he uses his father's straight razor to do that. You know, it's not it's not just a tool of self-defense. He is permanently scarring, you know, yes. a, a, a representative of this white power structure 
And yeah, so, guy has nothing left. And, yeah, and, and, and he's know. and he says you can't choose blindness anymore because we know like Malone does know what's going on. Yeah. Like, as you noted earlier, Joss. And, yeah. and he chose blindness and he fucking can't anymore. Exactly. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah. You know, and sorry, you know, if you if you make that choice, you know, if you fuck with a with a subject people, you know, that subject people will fuck back. Yeah, and and it literally you have this moment where Malone cannot close his eyes and meets eyes with Cthulhu, and Cthulhu's mm. eyes fucking open. Um, and uh, and then at this moment, you know, the building is falling overhead as the artillery does, and a bunch of of uh, NYPD officers come down the stairs and they have their guns out, and it seems like you know Tom is going to go down. Um, and it doesn't say what happened right there. It takes a second for him to be remembering, but basically what happens is, and they're not sure how. Um, Tommy does some like cool trick and drops all the officers and then says, I'll take Cthulhu over you devils any day mm. and then vanishes and the building collapses on them. And like Cthulhu's awake. Um, and, and, and it takes, and then it goes to, you know, it goes and talks about Malone. He's in retirement now and he has to wear special goggles and he makes up a story uh, like a couple layers of fake stories, like one fake story of, oh, I'm traumatized because X. And then another layer, the fake story that is told in the horror Red Hook of, oh, I saw hell and demons. But he knows underneath it all and he occasionally sees it. He sees mm-hmm. it literally in the sky, the face of Tommy saying, I'll take Cthulhu over you devils any day. And he knows like, oh, like we, we. And he has a, and he has a public breakdown, um, yeah. which, is where, which is where the horror Red Hook starts. Yes. Um, not many weeks ago, on a street corner in the village of Pasquag, Rhode Island, a tall, heavily built, and wholesome-looking pedestrian furnished much speculation by a singular lapse of behavior. This lapse of behavior, of course, being, yeah, collapsing in the street and screaming. Yes. And it's it's remarkable. And it's also remarkable that the fake story of the horror of Red Hook literally has to be him creating this image so he doesn't have to reckon with the fact that like a black man was able to defeat new york's finest basically like that is that you know there's some element of that and there's obviously the element of the horror he experienced but like it's also notable the choice tommy made and in the last chapters reckon with this before tommy you know has his sort of mysterious ending where he disappears never to be seen again but where tommy says to his friend like you know straight up like, no, I've ended their society. It might take a few months. It might take a century. I don't know how long it takes for these horrors to awake and for them to rise. Their time is not our time. But the seas will rise and devour the earth. And, like, we, like, no, their society is done. It's doomed. I, you know, Tommy Tester have ended this shit. Um, and it's notable. And, and you know, of course, it, it has that element of like, ooh, well, when will Cthulhu rise from the seas? And, you know, you can make your, you know, whatever. But it's like interesting that he's like, no, made that call. And then he vanishes never to be seen again. But he like made the call to like end the world, basically. Mm-hmm. He, he, um, he, uh, it, it reminds me, I'm only thinking of this now, but in our V for Vendetta episode, we have this like, we have this part where we said like V represents the um, outcast of the world saying I've judged the earth guilty. You have two years to like make up for your sins. This is a very similar situation. And Tommy passed fucking judgment from, from, <laughs> like, from, from page 130. I bear a hell within me. Black Tom growled and finding myself unsympathized with wished to tear up the trees, spread havoc and destruction around me. And then to have sat down and enjoyed the ruin. You're a monster then Malone said. I was made one. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and if it ever gives a film adaptation, that's going to be like a badass scene too. Just, you know, the, it's so cinematic and there's like the portal with fucking Cthulhu and it's, it's, it goes hard, you know, and it's, you know, it's obviously metal as hell. And I actually meant to mention this earlier, but Victor Laval is apparently gets a lot of inspiration from metal music. He says when he writes his, oh, fuck writes, yeah. he says he feels like a lot of metal and hip hop are about deals with the devil and Faustian deals, whether they know it or not. He says, mm. I gave up a lot. It's interesting. He makes the point. He says so much of hip hop and so much of metal art. I gave up so much to get this, you know, went through hell to get money or I went through hell to get my career or I have been through so much, but now I can convert it into art, this pain into art. And he says that's fundamentally a Faustian deal. So yeah. a lot of this is inspired by hip hop and metal. And it's a metal ass scene. Like it is a, you know, I'll take a Thulu over you devils any day. Guitar riff walking into the portal. Like, mm -hmm. and, 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 and it's cool, but it's also like obviously fundamentally horrifying and sad because it is a guy who has decided to end humanity. And it is about the contradictions of, you know, you know, a imperialist society destroying it and you know you can take that literally in many ways he says the seas will rise i mean in some extent there is just the straight up contradictions of like climate change destroying humanity i'm not calling mm -hmm. this a climate change metaphor i'm just saying you can see that there there is you know the idea of like oppressed people rising up and fighting back there is you know the oppression of the police that have so long been on all kinds of communities coming back home and that violence you know, resurging there is the horrible things that we now experience in our society because there was no other way to contain the contradictions. It is the contradictions coming home, looking you in the face and saying, I'm here and now you have to reckon with me and mm -hmm. you cannot be blind to it. You can, you, your eyes lids will be ripped off if you do not look at it and reckon with it and say, where do we go from here? There, there is a wonderful passage, um, earlier in the first quarter or so of uh, the black jacobins by clr james right about the mm. Haitian revolution you know where you know james is very frank with um the you know some of the some of the reprisals some of the violence done by the uh, slaves freeing themselves right you know against their former masters and whatnot and you know he says look you know this happened and this happened and this happened you know and yet they were moderate you know compared to the daily you know compared to the quotidian violence that you know, served only to keep these people in, you know, immiseration and subjugation, you know, this spate of, uh, this, this spate of violence, this spate of vengeance served to end that dynamic. And then yeah. it was over, you know? And I mean, you know, the, 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 um, the, my favorite footnote in any, in any book comes from that, um, you know, and that, and, and yet they were moderate. Um, James says, this statement has been criticized. I stand by it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. As we stand by everything ever said on the social shelf, by the way. Yes. Yes. Probably yeah. not, but you know. Anyway. <laughs> yes, including that uh, you know certain cities in uh, Iowa aren't real. <laughs> uh, formal apology to whatever that city was called. Sorry <laughs> I'm sure you. they'll. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know this. Uh, in, in the Ballad of Black Tom ends in a very ballad way of the protagonist leaping from you know 
to his apparent death, but then they look out and he's gone. And you know, and and you can almost you can almost hear it doesn't say it, but you can almost hear the narrator saying, "And some say he still walks the streets." You know, it's it's that kind of that and kind of and, and you know, there's that element of you know he's still kind of singing the blues at the end, right? You know, he yeah. says, "Look, I wish I'd been more like my father," right? You know, he he didn't give up his soul. You know, I wonder mm. if I could ever get mine back. You know, yeah. And yeah, he wishes he could be more like his father, but unfortunately, his father was killed. Unfortunately, that path was denied to him. Mm-hmm. He was made a monster. Like, yes. you know, he was forced into this and he tried every other path. Yep. Um, and it ends and, yeah. Zigzag, yeah, zigzag zig. That's that's the we've gone this whole this whole time without without uh, zigzag zig. That's the last um, that's the last bit of the uh, supreme alphabet that he uses to complete the spell. You could be stressed in your life, but don't worry because, like, you know, Cthulhu is coming pretty soon anyway. I mean, it's been about a century. There's no way that it, the sea's rising. No, no, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. But it's worth noting that, like, these contradictions, like, do destroy society. You know, um, these contradictions are, you know, the chickens do come home to roost, as as Malcolm X said, um, and they will continue to. And like, really um, remarkable sometimes it's scary sometimes and and unfortunately like necessary ways yes um but also you know you i we can choose not to close our eyes we can choose not to be the guys who have our eyelids chopped off and are forced to see you know um we we don't have to you know there's the you know the the biblical idea of like every knee will bow some will be forced to bow like (laughs) i would say that this feels very much like this uh every eye will see some will have their eyelids chopped off Mm -hmm. um addendum on the book of revelation there i suppose that's not supposed to be allowed so um apologies for the blasphemy but you know in keeping with lovecrafting tradition um it's very much like that so you know ultimately are you gonna be a malone or are you gonna be a tommy like or or are you gonna be some like who are you who are you with because you which side are you on because there are like there are sides you have to take. You can be Malone and you can be a socially conscious, um, you know, infograph posting tool of the state. Like, you know, Malone might post like, you know, his infographics and vote for Joe Biden. But at the end of the day, he's still a fucking cop mm-hmm. and he's still calling the masses of the people down or the masses of the police down to like repress poor communities. Or you can take this other side, whatever that ends up, you know, looking like, however that manifests. And, um, you know, this is a fun play on Lovecraft and criticism of Lovecraft and also celebration of Lovecraft, the good parts of Lovecraft. It is a fun and and, and cutting social commentary. And, um, you know, I didn't realize until I read it what a perfect novella for our current time, as in like by current time, I mean, November 2nd, 2023, how perfect it really is. And uh, yeah, hell of a recommendation on this one, Joss. Uh, hats off to you on this one. Well, well, well recommended. Again, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have read it were it not for my sister giving me this book as a gift. You know, she is, she is much more, she is a much bigger reader than I am. She is much more active in the sci-fi sort of fantasy space than I am. Mm-hmm. So again, this is, this goes out to her. All right. Well, I've think I've said my piece and more. What do you have any final thoughts before we wrap this thing up? Yeah. Current events decolonization is messy the end of apartheid is messy the end of slavery is messy and you know marx summed it up pretty well there is something in human history like retribution and it is a rule of historical retribution that its instrument be forged not by the offended but by the offender himself so folks just remember 
Don't you mind people grinning in your face. Don't you mind people grinning in your face. I said, bear this in mind. A true friend is hard to find. Also said by Karl Marx. Thanks, everyone. Have a good one. Peace out.